You are listening to the Enormo Cast. Fall is just around the corner, and by the end of summer, most of us have had it up to our last clip with all the inane chit chat, dogs with personal space issues, and the beta, all oh, the goddamn beta, that goes with the mostly idle day at the sport cliff or the bouldering spot. And the cool temps have us feeling the dormant urge to dart and flit among the cracks and dihedrals like rhapsodic cliff swallows high above the earth. And for all that crack darting, you're going to need protection. You know, cams, nuts, and the like. Of course, Black Diamond has you covered with the raddest gear around. Ultralight cams, wee steel stoppers, and hot damn, they even still make your granddad's favorite gear, the Hex. So whether you choose to dart, flit, or climb your biggest dream routes, stick with Black Diamond to get you to the top. Check out all their rock protection at blackdiamondequipment.com or your favorite local shop. Does your neck hurt playing someone else's project? Does your partner get in way over his head even on the warm-ups? Does the phrase, I'll just do this move one more time, make your eyeballs spin? Then let Belay Specs fight for you. When my boyfriend started falling lower and lower on his project, Belay Specs saved my neck and got me a new boyfriend. Belayer neck pain, also known as BNP, can interfere with work, play, family, and snapping your head around at the gym to check out those abs. So if your neck has been injured in an epic belay session... Go to belayspecs.com to see if you qualify for a pair of belay specs and to get what you deserve. Entry Normacast at checkout for a discount. Belay specs is not licensed to give legal advice to anyone. Results may vary by steepness. If belay specs cause you to trip, fall down, run into a door, nausea, dry mouth, you're probably too high to climb to begin with. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the... Uh... Enormo Dome, whatever it is, it's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big house. place. That's, out. Out. That's a big nice. place. You sold oh, it out. Out. I'll see. We really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having them with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, with support from Maxim Ropes. And the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Normacast. This is your host, Chris Caloose. It is August 31st, about 2.30 in the afternoon. Yes, I'm doing an, a Normacast intro in the afternoon. Welcome to the end times. Pardon the locusts. Yeah, this is episode 158, conversation with longtime Valley Denison and facelift founder Ken Yeager, and also Allison Gonzalez, who works with Ken on the facelift, gets a word in Edgewise as well. So this is a big advocacy one coming up. Ken started that thing just out of the back of his pickup, and now it's a monster event that cleans up tons and tons, hundreds, thousands by now, tons of trash out of Yosemite Valley. 
And what we found out, too, is that Ken has done a lot to ease longtime historical tensions between law enforcement and climbers in the valley, which is interesting and something that I kind of have felt easing over the years myself. But a lot of it's thanks to Ken working on that with with the Park Service there. So that'll be coming up in a bit. Before we go to that, though, some news. I have another Enormo coupon code for you. Our friend Luke Mihal over at ClimbingZine.com has released the latest issue, number 13, the One World Issue. Stories from around the world, including hunting for a flying squirrel in Pakistan, some portal-edge protests in Tasmania, and of course, some climbing poetry. Who's still doing climbing poetry out there? Are there any other publications that dare to put in climbing poetry? Anyway, if you go over to climbingzine.com, you can enter Enorma at checkout for a 20% discount on the climbing zine. Helping out Luke Mihal. Keep it independent, brother. Okay, to today's episode. Today's episode is an advocacy episode. I like highlighting some of this stuff out there because uh, every once in a while it inspires somebody to do something proactive for their own climbing area, their local climbing area, and not relying on the access fund or somebody else to do it. And it's interesting how climbers really do want to pitch in, want to help, but obviously our lives are busy and it just takes one person to organize something. And I think usually the community comes together pretty quickly. I mean, get a raffle, have a little bit of beer and shit, you could move mountains, literally. Climbers will show up for that and work all damn day if you promise them a beer, a hamburger, and a shot at winning a chalk ball at the end of the day. So hopefully somebody will get inspired by this, by what Ken did, and get out there and change the world. Attention slipper people, the Sportiva Cobras are back and they're better than ever. Um, dude, I think that's a rattlesnake. And now that's just a whip. Sweep the leg. No mercy. Okay, now you got it. But the really good news is that the Cobra Eco is made from 85% recycled materials with low-impact adhesives and tanning process. What's more, not a single gluten is harmed in Sportiva's revolutionary gluten-friendly manufacturing process. Unless, of course, you count the break time cannolis. So flaky. But seriously, the Cobra remains a legend for its fit and all-around performance from boulders to sport climbs and even thin cracks. And they're back and better than ever. So check out the renewed Cobra Eco at Sportiva.com or your favorite local shop. And remember the glutens. Run free and climb hard, little glutens. Have you ever been to a facelift? I haven't been to a facelift. How long has it been going on? Well, I did the first one in 2004, so this will be um, our 15th annual this year. Okay. And it's grown quite a bit. Um, it grew very quickly, and in fact, uh, it got so big in 2007 that ever since then, I pretty much don't advertise it at all. Oh, right. to keep the attendance at, at a constant level, because I was afraid it was going to get shut down. Oh, really? Just because it packs the place too hard and well, people partying too hard. I remember that year, I think it was the year Josh Ritter came and played out in front of the visitor center. 
And I saw, obviously, Josh Ritter fans getting pulled over in the valley. It kind of was starting to look like a music festival. Oh, I got you. And I was afraid. Um, it was hard enough to get permission from the Park Service at the time because, at first, they weren't open to the idea of, okay, a beer party afterwards and evening yeah. shows and raffles and sponsors and all this thing. But they eventually come around. But it was quite a fight to get permission in the old days. Now yeah. that we partner with the Park Service, uh, it's a lot easier. Right. So originally it was it was just like a private idea that you had. You thought you'd gather people to to uh, clean up. Well, I'll I'll back up a little mm -hmm. bit. I started. Um, yeah, it was two thousand four was the first one, and I was a climbing guide at the time. <laughs> and my job is not only to uh, climb with people and climb safely with them, was also to kind of teach them how to treat the wilderness areas and. In the outdoors, right, and so it was. It was really getting embarrassing because, you know, you'd be going on some of the climbing trails, and you're telling them how beautiful this place is, a wilderness area, and you're tiptoeing through toilet paper and and cigarette butts and all this trash everywhere. And I used to get so pissed off because, I mean, it sucks when you step on some of that with your climbing shoes. Mm -hmm. And anyway, and I wouldn't put it in my pack, so uh, I was climbing at a short little climb at the end of the day to try to cook a client at the end of the day and teach them a little crack climbing. And they, um, I stepped through so much toilet paper and then I, um, ran into Eric Rice from Patagonia up there and we were just talking about how bad it was getting and, and it'd been bothering me for years and I was never going to put it in my pack. And so then I finally just go, you know, I could be pissed off at the world for the rest of my life or I could do something about it. Mm -hmm. So I talked to Eric and I go, you know, I've been thinking about maybe just getting some litter sticks and bags and, picking some of this stuff up at least then i won't have to step in it and he goes that's a great idea i'll support you with some raffle prizes if you want and so that's how it started uh did three days of cleanup just in camp four i ran it out of the back of my pickup truck and we probably got maybe 40 truckloads of stuff and put it all in dumpsters recycled what we could um, but the thing that i noticed was about 120 people a day we had so much fun cleaning it up, and I, I just had no idea it'd be so much fun. Right. And, it sounded and, like work. Yeah, it did, but it's like, <laughs> we all felt good about what we were doing, and so at the end, uh, I bought some beer and, you know, sodas and stuff, and we had a big campfire, and we did a little raffle with these Patagonia items, and then I've, I've just kind of developed on that year after year, try to make it bigger and better right. every year, and, and eventually we incorporated daily raffles went to the very next year to a five-day cleanup because a lot of people really wanted to do it and couldn't because they were working and um, almost immediately we get up to about 2,000 unique volunteers a year and it's been stable ever since because right. I don't advertise it's you all don't, word yeah. of mouth I don't now you have, though. Now, now you're about to. Well, yeah. people have caught on and, no, and caught definitely on. ask about it. So <laughs> no, there no. are several, you know, interviews and things. Yeah, we've done quite a few over the years. And in fact, mm -hmm. 2007, the one year that scared me, we had, uh, I think it was almost 4,000 volunteers. Right. And, and a lot of kids. But the, uh, what's his name? David Muir with World News Tonight came out and did a five and a half minute piece, which they show every year. Mm -hmm. And... Um, Anyway, so that kind of gave put us on the uh, on the radar, and that's what scared me. Yeah, and now randomly we'll see like NBC Bay Area go visit Yosemite in September for the facelift. Really? No, 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 no. I don't care. I would, if the Park Service advertises it, mm -hmm. so it's mm -hmm. fine with me. 
And now right. that we partner together, that yeah. they they kind of promote it quite a bit more. And we got an Instagram account. You know, I'm not a social media guy or anything. Right. I'm, I'm like 60 years old. So um, anyway, this stuff's all a little challenging for me, but it's doing really well. And we got a lot of followers. And I was just telling Allison, showing her last night, is everybody tags us with mm -hmm. their Yosemite photos. I mean, literally thousands of them. Like probably, wedding photos probably like in Yosemite. 40, yeah, 40 or 50 a day or so sometimes. It's, huh. it's unbelievable. Well, Allison, you said that you, you the reason we're here in the room is because you had heard that Yosemite episode. And um, I mentioned it on there just because uh, we were on El Cap. And the one thing that I, I, I hadn't climbed El Cap in quite a few years. You know, when I'm up there now and I think back to the era that I started wall climbing in, which wasn't that long ago. I mean, it was the 90s. And that the ethic was to just, I mean, it's it, the word ethic is is kind of ironic because there's nothing ethical about it, but was to throw all your garbage off the climb while you were doing it. Like that was, I think when I said it on there, I kind of qualified it a bunch of times because it sounds so absurd. Anywhere else, we were these outdoorsmen or outdoors people that would never do that. But for some reason, just that we thought it was so desperate or whatever, that every ounce of <laughs> can or whatever got yeah, thrown it off. It definitely takes a cultural shift right, yeah. for everybody's ethic to change. I think facelift actually was a part in promoting that change in attitude among climbers, you know, with Ken and, and the growth. Mm -hmm. um, I, I was on the nose in 2009, and the first nose wipe that I read about was 20, was it 2013, was it earlier than 2013? I uh, quite honestly can't remember anymore. They're but all I remember, blurred like, together. the camps were just, I mean, just disgusting. Totally. Camp yeah. sticks in particular. Yeah, with, yeah. The, with that gap, you know, yeah. behind, like, the, the ledge and, like, the wall, and it was just trash from all over the world too because that route gets gets people from all it, over the world i climbed i slept on that ledge first time in 1977 <laughs> it was bad then okay <laughs> it's always been bad yeah it feels like maybe it was a modern problem but you know going all the way back it was this idea of again just i get rid of everything because it could be the difference between huh. climbing and that was my realization i, me I mentioned on the show is at some point, I just stopped because I thought, well, if I if I can't climb this thing because I have a couple empty cans in my haul bag, then maybe I shouldn't be up here because if it's that dead, like the fine line. But it was, yeah. it's again, the I'm just like, ounces. right, trying to like wrap my head <laughs> around who I was that I was like, that's fine, I'll just throw. Well, and I then also the, all, all the shit, like yeah. the yeah. shitting on El Cap 2 and throwing horrible. it off in bags. And yeah, it was like, it was like a... It's the culture, though. Yeah. It's what everyone right. is doing. You don't even... It's hard for us to perceive things yeah. outside of the norm. Oh, totally. Well, in the 70s, you just went on the rock. And I climbed El Cap. The first year I started climbing El Cap, I was 18 years old. And I did four El Cap routes. And only one other time where there are other people on the rock. Mm -hmm. That's how desolate it was. So, it, you know, it was a problem, but it wasn't a real obvious problem at, at that time. But then in the 1980s, El Cap got really popular. And it became such a problem that people started pooping in their paper bags and throwing them off. The idea being that it would dry out. And then it was standard back then to drop stuff or throw stuff off. And then you go and scour the base at the end of it and clean it up. But it's sort of stupid. But you end up cleaning up more than what you 
dropped off. Nine yeah. times out of ten, you might miss a couple things. If you're doing, if if that's you're what doing. you're doing, but but not everybody did no. it. Not everybody did it, and that became a really big problem. Plus, there's it was so popular that there were, like you said, paper bags everywhere, and it was. I mean, it was gross. it was like it, it was like a super fun side of toxic. Pretty much. I mean, much. the base L cap in the '90s, because this was again was, it's even more popular and rape sort of before people decided that it was time to stop doing that. And it took a while um, in terms of bringing the tubes along and things like yeah. that. But the, my first few years wall climbing there, it was incredible, like just gross, you know, mm. and you're in the most beautiful place in the world. And, you know, within 50 feet of the base of El Cap is basically like a toxic hazard, you know? So, um, and this time around, I climbed it again in 2008 and then I just climbed it. And the difference is, is amazing. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the trash on the wall too. And I don't, I mean, you guys have been part of uh, what you call the nose wipe, uh, which was like, you know, basically technical litter, mm-hmm. taking care of technical litter up there. And have you done other routes or other parts of El Cap as well? We've done Half Dome. Okay. Uh, we do Glacier Point. below okay. Glacier Point. Um, one thing with a facelift, I feel like climbers are generally pretty good. We we get on each other if somebody really botches a route and really dirties it up. Mm-hmm. Um, usually they're going to get called on that. And with the facelift, I, you're probably well aware of our relationship, the climbing relationship with the Park Service over the years. It was horrible, right? And I realized there's an opportunity there mm-hmm. to work with the Park Service and maybe kind of break down some of those barriers. So... Because of that, um, we focus more on areas uh, like turnouts and stuff where we, everybody goes out and craps in the mm-hmm. wood or dumps their ashtrays or fast food bags. Um, I wanted to show that we were willing to work with the Park Service and clean up trash that we weren't responsible for, right. but that we were good work source, good land stewards, and you know, give us a try. Let's become friends again. And so I've tried to break down those barriers, and it, it's working. And... I feel like uh, climbers are treated a lot better than we were even just, you know, 15 years ago. Yeah, we're not only cleaning up trash from other youth groups and, uh, like, visitors, but also sometimes construction debris from, like, a long time ago that's been left, Mm -hmm. not by visitors. Uh, So the Glacier Point I mentioned uh, a few years ago, I was involved with, like, a climbing ranger. We wrapped down below the Glacier Point lookout with haul bags and, like, hauled out a whole bunch of, like, rebar that had just been like tossed over and was like lying on the slope below the lookout, you know, and that took like technical expertise. So it took like a group of climbers who were able to do that and like haul that out to help the park kind of get rid of that debris that had been there for, I mean, I don't know how long, right? And the cool thing about this is we, we haul it back to the mall where every where our booths are set up and we have a big scale. We weigh everything. Mm-hmm. And so we've been keeping trash. You know, we've been keeping track of the uh, pounds over the years. And we're over a million yeah. at this point. A million pounds of trash. And then it finally went down about three, four years ago. We were getting finding more and more every year. We got pretty much all the heavy stuff. There's still a lot of asphalt, concrete chunks and here and there distributed throughout the park mm-hmm. but uh now it's micro trash and it's anywhere from about 10 to thirteen thousand pounds a year right. last year actually might have been the first year was just under ten thousand pounds so but that's cigarette butts and wrappers Toilet and plastic bay yeah it's 
That's still, still astounding. Yeah, but there's <laughs> yeah. four or five million visitors. Right. Actually, last year there was four five million visitors the whole year. So it's well, it's an it's hammered. an important perspective because you, anytime you're doing anything in this world, you think you have this very small individual impact, and oh, it's no big deal. And I mean, not deterring trash out your window or whatever is not no big deal, but that's kind of the attitude. What's this one little thing going to change? But it's an aggregate, you know, and, and when it when you put it into those kind of numbers that that there's, you know, 10,000 pounds even, and that's a good load, that's yeah. like low, uh, a year to clean up in the park is pretty wild, you know? Right. Well, it's, it is so populated, so it's definitely a problem. One thing I have noticed, if an area is clean, it stays clean for quite a while. Mm -hmm. But once somebody sort of dumps something there, next thing you know, it just starts piling up and rather quickly. It, it's kind of amazing. I mean, I've lived in the park since 1976, so I've seen what happens there, and I explored it um, all over the place, so I know it pretty well. But it, it blows my mind how, you know, a place can be clean all along, then some jerk will dump something, then next thing you know, you go back a week later, and it's there's 10 Everyone's times as much stuff. added to it. Yeah, it's almost like uh, you have the attitude, well, there's a pile of trash there, they have people that they pay here, the park service, pay for somebody to clean up this trash so they go, oh, I'll just put my trash here and when whoever cleans yeah, it whoever up, cleans gonna, it gonna up will come clean it up. It. And then we run into things too where we're out there cleaning up and, you know, we don't, I try not to tell, or we try to set a good example, that's all. And we want people for it to be their own idea and help. And sometimes you're out there and people are helping you uh, fill up your bags and stuff. And next thing you know, you got 40 people and you fill up a bag in no time, which is really rewarding and we don't really get the numbers of those people that help right but it's very contagious some people think you're like part of a prison work group right so you hear people talk about oh, i wonder what they did stay you know, away, stay away. <laughs> yeah they're scared of us especially you know long-haired climbers and dirty you know haven't washed their clothes all week or something so anyway we get cut at both spectrums but, right, but right. It, it's kind of interesting uh, well, Guy, Ken's son, was telling me a st an awesome story yesterday where there were kids picking up cigarette butts, and there was a guy who was smoking, and he tossed his cigarette butt down, but then, like, saw the kids and, like, went back and, like, picked up his butt and put it out. And, like, you know, these kids can pick up this stuff, like, so can I, you know. Yeah, we have a lot of the daycare does the field trip, and the schools, local schools do it as field trips. And uh -huh. They love it. It's like, um, as my son said, their favorite uh, field trip all year is doing the facelift. Part of it's because we have these incredible raffles, so I try to make sure every kid wins something, and uh -huh. that way they associate, you know, like cleaning up trash just to something really fun, right? And so uh, we have Timmy O'Neill comes out and does helps me with the raffles. Sometimes when he's not there, I got to do it, but Timmy's way better at it than yeah, I well, am. Yeah, well, yeah, he's born yeah. to do it. <laughs> I know. And it's, anyway, it's so much fun because the kids just come up. We do the kids raffle first, then the adult raffle, and we do that every day. The only way you can get a ticket is to come out and clean up trash. You can't buy them. You right. only get one. And if you don't win, you got to come back tomorrow because we're throwing all these tickets away and we're starting a whole new uh -huh. raffle. So it kind of encourages people to help out all five days. And the kids grow up just loving it. So I'm kind of hoping they'll be our future land stewards. Um, not only that, that they'll take on the facelift when I want to step out of it because I'd like to see it continue sure. on. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it could be a tradition forever. Yeah, Certainly. that's what I'm hoping. Right. Anyway, and that's... so so did you imagine? I mean, it's kind of funny the way you you have all this knowledge about 
patterns of litter and trash and yeah. things like that. But, you know, did you ever imagine that would be something you had expertise? And I, I, it made me think, cause I've been on, or I was, I'm off the board now, but on the friends of Indian Creek board oh, cool. and somewhere in there, I basically said that our motto should be changed to like, we help you poop <laughs> because that was really our, the whole time I was there, the constant thing we were doing was bathrooms and where do we put them and how do we pay for them? And, how do we partner with the BLM to pay for them? And that's all we talked about and all we kind of did. And because there's, it's a remarkably, that place is remarkably clean mm -hmm. to the point where I've had friends from Europe come over and they can't believe how clean that climbing area is. That's great. And <clears throat> I, I don't know, I think we don't, it's just climbers really visiting those cliffs because it's, mm -hmm. you know, there's a drive through in terms of a road, but uh, there's, there's no tourists or no, really what I always call civilians on the mm -hmm. show. But uh, I think that helps, but I've always been pretty amazed. If you find anything besides micro like tape and butts, it's probably like blew out of somebody's pack, you know, there's just right. such a good attitude there. But our whole thing was, was yeah, pooping. And so. Well, different areas have different problems. Yeah. So, but Yosemite just has just this plethora of problems. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, uh, part of the and I can understand a lot of it so imagine put yourself in the place of a, a family right and kids are whining you're trying to get to Yosemite there's a lot of traffic you get to the gate and it takes an hour to get in the gate and by this time you don't even want to pull over and anybody gotta go to the bathroom no okay we're going to get our campsite right and I mean you could picture it i think virtually everybody goes through this and then they get halfway to the valley and it's a lot further than they realize that suddenly the kids got to go to the bathroom right. <laughs> and it's still another six eight miles into the you know to the valley floor and so they pull over at the turnout and they go out in the woods and one one person's got to go well i got to go too and so the whole family does and you open your door it's a little windy some paper right. blows out i mean it, a lot of it's unintentional it's, mm -hmm. Um, unfortunately, when somebody does do it intentionally, it's, it impacts an yeah. area in a huge way. But once we clean it up, then we can start over the next year. So um, anyway, I, I, I never thought it would turn into what it did. I quite honestly, I did it for selfish reasons because I was tired of yeah. sticking to my feet. This toilet paper, I mean, it was disgusting. And uh, and after realizing how much fun everybody had, I realized that it was a good way to kind of turn around the relationship between the climbers. Yeah, that's a big deal. I think and, and that's probably the biggest. We're we're really thing lucky to out. have seen in our climbing careers, mine's much shorter than Ken's, this turnaround in the attitudes between climbers and rangers in Yosemite. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a much there's a much better relationship now, even in how certain things will kind of go unaddressed at this point. That before we're actually pursued and like kind of. You know, I, there was a kind of a cat dog chase thing going on with rangers and climbers. And that was when I first started in climbing in Yosemite in 2007. It was still like that. Right. And even over the last 11 years, there's been a change. And I think um, I think that's due to the fact that I think the industry is actually. It's helping too. recognize that mm -hmm. we have the responsibility to be stewards. And mm -hmm. that's kind of become the like trendy, you know, trendy thing, mm -hmm. which is great. I mean, as far as trends go, to, to make climbers more res feel more responsible for the land that they're climbing in. Right. And really have that, that cultural shift and have the norm be that we're actually going to be the model 
for other other visitors right is is great you we know we turned the tables is what we did well ken <laughs> let me ask, i was thinking about this when you when you first started talking about this relationship and you've been climbing there uh since the early 70s yeah, and living there since 76 you just said well and the other thing is that you know it's it's also kind of famous even before um valley uprising but there's always been this this idea like you just said where there's a you know cat and dog cat and mouse whatever between the two groups cat, cat and mouse i think <laughs> yeah, what, her, her, i don't know what the expression is well i mean it, it, <laughs> whatever <laughs> there's know, dogs and mice and cats dogs, and cats none and of them mice. are getting along is what's the point um, what do you what do you think the uh the uh basis of that was back um i've got my own theories i think it has to do with the um the Stoneman Meadow riots. Okay. In 1970, I believe it was 1970, they had the riots. They kind of took over the meadow and, you know, they're out there smoking pot and doing LSD and all that stuff and partying and enjoying the valley. And they weren't in a proper campground. And so the rangers went in there and tried to break it up on horseback and they got in some altercations. And I think it scared the park service. And then in the 70s, Okay. A lot of the climbers, we looked just like those people that mm -hmm. were riding in uh, Stoneman Meadow, long hair, beards. And you know how climbers are. We're pretty self-sufficient, right? If you push on us, we're going to probably push back or at least hold our ground. And so I think there suddenly became this, you know, opposition there from one side to another. So it, quite honestly, I've seen some of the footage from those riots and scared the Park Service. You know, mm -hmm. They almost lost control of the whole thing. And it you know, a lot of people could have got hurt. Right. And so I think that was how it all started. And then um, there's other factors in there. Jealousy. Okay. Look at these guys. They come here. They don't work. <laughs> they climb every day. And God dang it, in the wintertime, they get all the girlfriends. And they right. move into these cabs. And I can't even get a girlfriend, you know. And so there was some, a lot of jealousy i think there too these guys get to go have fun but there was respect on, on the same so it, it almost became a game you know you get mm. back to the the cat and mouse thing it became a game to kind of outwit the other side sure so, yeah um anyway that's how i've seen it happen and, yeah. and it was a horrible way to live i mean i i remember times where I sneak into the dorms to get a shower, right? And they had security was big presence of uh, Curry Company security back uh -huh. then. And they get a report, oh, there's a climber in the bathroom taking the shower, right? And you'd hear their radios and it's like, oh, damn. And you'd grab your clothes and go running out in the rocks, right? They'd chase you until you got to the rocks. And they got scared and wouldn't follow you back there because that was like our home ground. <laughs> and we knew all the boulders, right? <laughs> they didn't, you were like, they were, well, be like one of those movies and where this is back, all of a sudden it's all quiet and all these people come out from behind rocks. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> that's the what they thought would happen. Warriors. So, <laughs> so we had our safe areas and, the, and we had other, but you'd have to venture out into their area just <laughs> Get a shower. But it was, I mean, it was damn near like that. It was mm. pretty bad. I, you know, they don't like it when people are not. We weren't angels the either. Yeah. Oh, so certainly not. Right. Certainly not. And what it took, the facelift helped. So we kind of just mm. like, okay, let's start over. And so I did a couple things to kind of help or prod that process along. One was I put some of the, the worst 
or you know what were considered the toughest LEO people to get along with. They they went out to uh, work on a project. <laughs> they all do have reputations. But then I put huh? people like Dean Potter and and, uh, and other people that hated their but I had them work together <laughs> and they cleaned. And then afterwards they go, you know what? That guy's not so bad after all. And, you know, we each had our own job to do, whether it was climbing, unpaid job, or a ranger. And they're you know, their jobs enforce the rules. And of yeah. course, if you break them, they're going to come after you. And um, the forum's really conducive to that, too, because it feels like a festival. You know, like Ken said earlier in the in our conversation, it's it's fun. You mm-hmm. know, it's not just like go out and pick up trash. It's like work together on a, on a specific project. At the end of the day, we've got all of our raffle prizes from our sponsors and everybody's so excited for everybody winning the raffle prizes. We have speaker programs in the evening. And so, you know, it gets conducive to people who might not have gotten along to, to them getting being like, okay, well, we can put aside those roles yeah. for like mm-hmm. this particular This one effort, week we're getting know? along because this is fun. <laughs> and it's just kind of, you know, I think it's helped a lot. I think the industry's become more legitimate, like a more legitimate use also. So that's a factor that's oh. helped helped our cause. I've, I've, that's kind of when I was saying, thinking about how I had thought about it, I, I, I had put a lot on that. And just in terms of climbing is a much more visible uh, user group. And I think it has been legitimized. Mm-hmm. You well, know. they have money now. That's yeah. the difference. Yeah. I mean, there's professionals out there. There are IT people or people in, you know, business that are you yeah, know, and I mean, people are visiting Yosemite because of the Dawn Wall, and they didn't yeah. even know about. Maybe yeah. they well, didn't even know. That's about always climbing, been an, a, a, a sort of a thing I didn't quite get was that you had it was sort of schizophrenic. You had the park, even in the '90s. You know, there's a celebration of the climbers, and it's part of the lore. And the Green Dragon stops, and and the lady points out all the climbers up there mm-hmm. and blows everybody's mind, and and. And I've always said, you know, aside from everything else, if you're a tourist in the park, that's one of the things you remember is seeing, oh, yeah. oh my God, there's somebody up there and they're on those weird little ledges. And, and you had, you had, you know, it's like then it, it, not, it was like when the sun goes down, then we're the enemy or whatever, you know, and it just kind of was oh, like a weird this, schizophrenic thing with we, the park service. We have this too with the public who will like just scream bloody murder about how irresponsible climbers are when there's like an unfortunate death in the mountains, mm-hmm. but they'll be the first in line to go watch like a feature film about Everest yeah. or like, you know, something down in South America. There is this strange like love hate relationship with the what did you call it the civilians yeah who would rather be like entertained than have a specific experience yeah with people who would rather have a specific experience than be entertained you know that's that's like do you, you know what i'm saying totally it's yeah a strange i just had a similar conflict. discussion to to that idea i mean and it was really apparent recently with the speed climbing and then um the two men who, who died on the free blast you know it's those two things happen simultaneously, almost, yeah. almost literally. Yeah. And, you know, one causes everyone to talk about how this is way too dangerous. And then the other one, where they're doing the same thing. Right. Oh, maybe even more so. And you have everybody celebrating Yeah, that it. was an so, odd, you know, odd week, right. for sure. Yeah, there, there's always been a need for interpretation of climbing in the valley and uh, years ago, uh, Tom Evans, you know, I noticed 
everybody would go out to him and ask him questions mm -hmm. while he was taking pictures of people, and he was having some problems staying in the valley. Um, and I set up a program to allow him to stay here. I got funding to start this program called Ask a Climber, which has become really popular now. So people can go down and actually look at the climbers, talk to somebody that's climbed El Cap, and ask questions and get legitimate information or accurate information. And um, anyway, that's it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty all part cool. of it. And I think it's really good. Um, you know, that's the other thing with the facelift. I try to bring other user groups into this so that we all work together because I feel like it's really important <coughs> that we reach out to other user groups and get that support. If we have a problem with um, uh, land, you know, people in charge of uh, our public lands or something like that, uh, we can get a lot of support if we reach out to these other groups and, and, and work with them. Instead <laughs> of, you know, we've always kind of hidden away, oh, I don't want to answer questions about climbing or anything like that, but I think it's important for us to reach out and also to realize that we're not the only ones or the best ones to use the park to mm -hmm. uh, the arrogance. Oh yeah, that we, we are. Have no, some... we are though. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, exactly. it does belong to us. Yeah, like, exactly. Just, but we just... are so self-centered as climbers. Sometimes <laughs> it's embarrassing. How many times have you gone to free food and they'll pile up the plate <laughs> like that and they'll take all the raviolis or right. whatever and not leave any, and then they won't eat it all and they'll leave it out on the side. Right. Oh, it's so embarrassing. Hey, we just cleaned up the whole park and you're gonna leave this trash out here come on it's <laughs> ridiculous so um, anyway no i i but we're also very hungry so. yeah. <laughs> oh i know and i get all that part of it yeah. let's uh well, the let's realize is, there's other people out there too that might like this area so yeah. you know you think about for the photographers for example if we got bright colored webbing all over all the rocks or you know things like that we just no, i I've, I've def i can i can jokingly or also sometimes oh, believe that like Climbers are are better than you know, like the civilians. Like that's kind of where you are, right there. Yeah, I mean, we, let's just face it. Look at us. But <laughs> but I'm also oh, my eyes are open, especially working on uh, my own uh, the the Friends of Indian Creek. You know, then all of a sudden your eyes are a little bit open to the the park services, or in this case the BLMs, uh, or in the case of the Indian Creek, the BLMs. You know, they have problems that are legit. And you kind of look at it from their eyes and yeah, the climbers can be a huge pain in the ass and mm -hmm. they are pushy. And a lot of times they do, you know, it's the give an inch, take a mile thing right. kind of deal. And there's this weird phase in your development as mm -hmm. a climber where you're just super entitled. Yeah. It's like, I don't know, it happens around like year one are like better than like a beginner, yeah. but you yeah. you don't really even know totally. that much about climbing. Yeah. I have Do you know, a theory I mean, we that. all went through this, right? Yeah. And we all have friends I'm who are. I'm proud of my carabiners. <laughs> Look at my climbing rope. Is that what you're but then other, Well, my theory is that other people, whoa, you're taking up climbing. And so they kind of, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are fascinated by climbing that will never do climbing you know it's almost yeah. like they're idolizing yeah, and yeah. so they're they well, suddenly feel like uh, they got a little alec Donald in them or somebody well, like that you I know started. what i'm saying and, and so they kind of strut a little more stand up a little taller and talk a little bit more you know totally and i did that when i was i a kid, started you climbing know? in 2005 on the east coast in the northeast actually because i was in college in boston and mm -hmm. so like at cathedral ledge and there's a part, uh, if you, you know, Cathedral Ledge, you top out at this lookout. 
So you're topping out at essentially like the equivalent in Yosemite and there's way fewer people, but it would be like the Glacier Point lookout, right? Mm -hmm. And there's all these people who have like hiked up to this lookout, but you top out with all of your gear, right? And people look at you. I mean, I was climbing like five, six, right? But I topped out with all the gear and it's, you're a hero. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that that has something (laughs) to do with it. And, you know, it's like suddenly getting famous for a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Just, but in a very local sense. So I was going to back up a little bit. One thing we did with the facelift to help break down that park service animosity was, um, I was getting hounded a little bit. You know, people are trying to jump in their cars after drinking and stuff, no matter how much we encourage them not to. So one year I asked the chief ranger up there if he'd consider having some of the LEO to drive people to their campsites. And it was rough the first year, but um, it's gotten better and better. So we have a designated driver program now. But it was started initially with just the LEO driving people home and people are like, I'm not getting in the paddy wagon. You're, you're going to arrest me. I know. Right. <laughs> and I had to encourage them. No, it's okay. You're just, yeah, yeah. And it was really rough at first. Oh but you know, and mouse thing got a little he, too real. It was point. pretty intense. <laughs> like, but no, 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 no. it broke everything down though. So now. That cat is going to eat me <laughs> for sure. So now, you know, during the shows, Elio, they come over. If they have a slow moment, they stand outside the door because they want to kind of see the shows or say hi to people. And, there's a lot of climb, really good climbers that work for the Park Service now, so that that's changed things too. A yeah, lot. I think so, so too. You know, yeah, um, yeah I've seen there, that happen as well. There's a lot of factors for that, and all the you know the Don Wall thing, and you know, and Alex on 60 Minutes, and and all these things. You know, it's in the media so much more now too. So I, I think that's also helped. It's become more mainstream and accepted. I mean. Let's face it, back in the 70s when I started climbing, we were considered oddballs. Mm -hmm. And we were. Mm -hmm. I mean, we really were. I mean, most of us couldn't even talk to a girl. I mean, we were so socially inept. (laughs) So it's, anyway, so now it's it's a different type of person. And I think the climbing gyms have also um, brought the mainstream out there as well. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of factors. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's really wild to hear you talking about uh, all these things that you're doing to, because, to, you know, we all know, obviously, the facelift is to clean up the park, but it seems like so much of this work that you're doing, uh, how, I mean, you're like dealing with sort of these foundational things that have really needed to be changed. And um, did that, uh, is that something that's occurred to you as you've been doing it? Yeah, I really. More than like your mission in the beginning? Because obviously your mission was to clean up some, some toilet paper. Okay, there's, yeah, and I'll, Okay, after the first year, I realized that there was an avenue here to help improve the relationships. Uh, the other thing that I realized, too, I, I'm trying to build a climbing museum and have been asking since, what, 1992, 26 years now. Um, I have all the artifacts to do one, but I, I realized that this might help that cause as well. Um, and I just love Yosemite. I came there when I was 13 years old. First time climbed on Monday morning slab, you know, five ones. I mean, I started out, I pretty much taught myself. And on the way out, I asked my parents to stop in El Cap Meadow, and I ran up the base, touched El Cap, and I knew right then I wanted to move back and climb El Cap. So I was obsessed with Yosemite. And then when I moved up here, and actually kind of got to know the area in 1976, I kind of realized, damn, it's no different than high school. There's all these damn cliques, you know, it's like, 
the curry company would not talk to anybody else. Those employees, they'd stay to themselves. And, you know, the climbers would stay to themselves. So it was just like high school. And when I was in high school, I had friends that were smokers, friends that were, you know, the druggies or whatever, I had athlete friends and, you know, and friends from all the different things. And, and so I couldn't, I can never understand that about people. And, and so I've always been one to try to break down those barriers. And I feel like facelift, and that's why I try to include everybody, including the kids in school groups and mm-hmm. various things. I think it's really important that we get along. And I live in this town called, you know, El Portal, which is very unusual, 650 people, mostly employees and a lot of families. And what's kind of unusual about that town, since it is a small town, all the kids are different ages, but they look out for each other. They're friends. So, for example, my 14-year-old daughter, her best friend this year was a senior in high school. She played music with her and would ride to high school with her. So they're four years apart. And you don't see that in any other town. Uh, Same with my son. I mean, a lot of his friends are younger and older. and It's a nice community. So it's... You know, and that's the way it should be. People should just be humans to each other. But unfortunately, you know, especially yeah. kids that hang out at the same age group, you know, we're kind of forced to do that. We can get kind of cruel to the other other um, kids or people in general. And adults are no different. Well, I think we're we're lucky to have Ken because he he builds he builds community ar- mm. around him and he improves on it. You know, that's really one of his you know main mean skills, I think. Well, yeah, it, it, I mean, that's what's occurring to me while I'm talking to you, is that you obviously, and it's great that you just explained kind of your attitude from even the 70s, that you were the right guy at the right time to do this. And, I, and it, I mean, it, it's really great because a, another person could have, you know, done the cleanup but not realized all these other connections. And, and again, I'm sitting here, obviously a million pounds of trash is awesome, to get rid of, but I, I feel like there's there's this other part of it that's almost more important because of the, again, this foundational change yeah. that you've cr- started to create that will last, even if you stop doing the facelift mm-hmm. tomorrow, that, that's gonna last for a long well, time. So the, the, yeah. mi- the mission of the Yosemite Climbing Association is to preserve Yosemite climbing history, right? Mm-hmm. So building yeah. this foundation is so important toward that end because Ken mentioned you know, wanting to get a climbing museum in place and that'll be much harder to do if we don't have any sort of infrastructure. You know, the facelift has allowed us to have meetings with the park, get to know park service members who might be, you know, essential when when we have the resources to, to I, put a climbing museum in place. I can walk into the superintendent's office pretty much anytime I want. I never or rarely make an appointment. I mean, if they're busy, I'll, I'll leave them alone, of course. But uh, anyway, it just blows my mind. And to get back to this, I never wanted to do this stuff. It just wasn't getting done. And it was bothering me that it wasn't right. I would have mm-hmm. gladly just kept climbing and, um, you know, live my own selfish life but it's anyway it, i don't think you could have bothered. done that yeah that's well, what I, I, don't, I don't think you could have why. ken nobody in the room no, buys it no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I sometimes i go this is my last year this is too much work thank god allison stepped in and a bunch right. of other people right. too because um it is a tremendous amount of work but every year that we do it i go okay this is why i do it mm-hmm. and there's people that met at the facelift and have been to every single facelift every year. I think there's two people that have only missed two days out of the 15 years. Oh, right on. And 
And there's people that met there. There's people that met there and became married there. There's people that got married there. So it's become kind of, I hate to say it, almost like a cult or underground cult type of thing in some ways. I mean, For some people. Yeah, it, it's, a, <laughs> it's bizarre. I mean, I never, and, you know, I always thought, oh. I don't think we have to call it a cult. We'll, we'll just call well, it a fun, a fun event it, it, <laughs> that people enjoy bizarre. going to. <laughs> yeah, probably so. But, I, I mean, it just blows my mind, you know, how popular it became. Yeah. And it got to the point, actually, I, I kind of realized other people were talking about facelift, and so I um, actually registered or trademarked the name mm-hmm. as a for stewardship. And then I, I get emails once in a while. There's one guy that... Um, for example, he moved to Hawaii, but he participated in facelift. He goes, I don't know if you know this, Ken, and I'd heard about him. I didn't, I don't remember him and, and stuff, but he does these beach cleanups now mm. and cleans up all the plastic that washes up on Hawaii's beaches every week. So it sort of had an impact that way. Right. I had a father one time that said, thank you so much. My son and his friend came out and they had so much fun cleaning up trash that they went and cleaned up their local park. And now they're organizing, organizing one for their school in San Francisco. So those kinds of things to me are really rewarding. I never thought I'd be in this position. Right. I'm no trash expert. I'm no, <laughs> you are not that. <laughs> well, yeah. now I am, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, and it's not that bad, actually. Right. But uh, it, it's kind of cool. But it's, anyway, I guess, I, I think we all probably never see the things that kind of get thrown to us in life, right? Mm-hmm. And that we actually kind of pursue. And, Fall into the things that we're meant for. Yeah, yeah, I mean and, that's kind of the I mean, feeling that I'm getting. But um, and then climbing history too, I feel like. Yeah, let's anyway. talk a little bit about the museum. Yeah, nobody was collecting things. I got in. I started this. Well, Mike Corbett was had the idea first, and he was uh, one of my early LCAP partners. We did our first four LCAP routes together, and um, he talked about yeah, he wanted to do a, you know a museum, and I thought this is a great idea, and so. We started collecting items. I bought a video camera and wanted to do interviews. And what prompted me to get into is John Salat. They had passed away. Mm-hmm. And there was no mention of it in any of the climbing magazines. So I contacted a reporter friend of mine, uh, John Flynn, who worked uh, wrote for the Examiner and Chronicle. And he wrote a, an obituary on it. And I supplied, got a photo. And... So Climbing Magazine, six months later, finally ran one, or maybe it was a year later, in 1992. And so to do this obituary, we need to go talk to some of the people that climbed with them. So I bought a video camera and started recording it and told them what we wanted to do. And they just started handing all their gear over from garages and stuff. So you know, I went to like Richard Leonard's house, and he gave me all the stuff down in his basement, which were just notebooks from higher and lower cathedral spires. One of them has an Ansel Adams photo in it. Another one has Marjorie Bridge Farquhar photos. She was the female Ansel Adams at the time, and you know, with the protractor marks, so that you know, photos from all different angles, and they figured out which way. Anyway, these things are priceless, just really mm-hmm. cool. And I ended up with John Salathay's rack and rope and letters and photos, and and I currently have uh, three of the stove leg, of the seven stove leg pitons. I got the spool of hemp rope that they used for fixing. Um, I, I mean, I, the stuff we have, there's probably 10,000 items. And that's why I formed this nonprofit was to provide public ownership because a lot of the stuff ends up in collectors and, mm-hmm. you know, and somebody's mantle on there. Anyway, not that it's on exhibit at the moment, but it's been on exhibit quite a few times. 
Um, but I think it's important because uh, it belongs to all of us. So I'm just collecting it and I've uh, been trying to get a building in the park for years. Um, I, you know, because I've climbed so long, I've had access and met a lot of these people. And, you know, what other project where you can meet all your heroes? You know, I got to meet Jules Eichhorn and, you know, Richard Leonard. I never did meet Salate, but Harding, for example, I, he was, I met him when I was 16 years old, day after I got my driver's license. I drove to Lover's Leap went climbing and picked up my first hitchhiker and it was Warren Hardy. So <laughs> yeah, it's just weird. Anyway, so it's almost like it was meant to happen or something. Anyway, so I went to his mom's house, met his mom and she cooked dinner and fed me. And I lived in Davis at the time. This gave him a ride to Sacramento. We became friends and started climbing together. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, it's just been kind of a wild life. And and then, you know, through this museum project, I got to meet all my other heroes that I used to read about. You know, I read every single thing I could on climbing when I first started. Now I, I have a really hard time getting through any kind of climbing book, but um, maybe it'll change. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it's, it's been a fun, really fun project. And it, it exists uh, just cataloged in a... Where is it? Uh, I have it in a building next door. Okay. I've got it in, uh, I've got parts of it in two different rooms in my house. And I also have a house in Mariposa in their garage. I've got that <laughs> full of stuff. And as soon as we get a building, I'll have a ton what's the, more stuff. What's the sort of prognosis on that? It's actually looking very good. The uh, current superintendent is... Um, that he wants that's one of his goals as superintendent is to have a climbing museum i mean it, and it, going it, back to what i said about the, the 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 parks love hate with the climbing it just it makes so much sense yeah. to oh, have yeah. a climbing museum there in yosemite as part of it's a almost, thing that people do i started on this 26 years right. ago and i'm just going god darn it's over a quarter century so mm -hmm. i'm like better hurry up or i'm not gonna see it you know I really want to see it. And I know we. I did one exhibit. The last exhibit I did there was in uh, next to the Indian Museum. There's a what they call the Yosemite Museum. Small little hole in the wall that's kind of hard to find, right? Mm -hmm. And the exhibit I did there, they had three times the attendance of any other exhibit they'd ever had there. Over seventy thousand people right. in four months. And the docents couldn't even take their lunch. They were supposed to close it for an hour to go eat. Right. And so I was working construction at the time. I've always supported myself otherwise. And I went on my lunch breaks and give the docents a chance to leave out because they could not get people out of there. Same thing at the end of the day. It's like, okay, you got to have to come back tomorrow. But they, people were fascinated. I was blown away at how popular it was. And right afterwards, uh, the Conservancy, this would have been 2007, 2008, um, I did an exhibit. I, I had a quarter million dollars to work with, and we did an exhibit down at the Autry uh, Museum uh, of the of the West. I forget what, it's a long name, but um, down in Griffith Park in L.A. and and uh, that was a really nice exhibit. I had all, a real curator and designers and everything. So it and it was a beautiful exhibit, and that was going to travel around the country. And then the housing market right. burst, and suddenly there was no money it takes a lot of money to build an exhibit plus i was getting tired of um putting an exhibit together all this effort and then it's up for three four months and then you take it down costs a lot of money it's expensive 
and and travel. So a lot of times I'm, I was just working for free on my own. You know, I donate a lot of my time. But, right. But it's their causes that I feel really strongly about. Mm -hmm. and so sure, but so it's not even like work. Have it's to, time though. We yeah. also have. But I I had started having kids. Yeah, and yeah. Stuff, and <laughs> so I had to get responsible. Sure. Everybody goes, oh, when are you going to retire? And I go, no, I had an early retirement. I retired yeah. at 18 years old. Yeah. And now I got I just had now that, I got to work. I just so. had that discussion <laughs> two days ago. <laughs> Um, about how, yeah, we already took our retirement. And, <laughs> We're going to work to the it, grave now. And I moved to Yosemite during a really exciting time. Totally. I mean, it was during the Stone Masters. Uh, for example, I first moved up there was during the airplane crash. Mm -hmm. And so that's a whole nother story. You know, so, um, you know, everybody, there too. So right. it's, uh, you know, the stove legs and all these things from, from the, the, that golden age. <laughs> what about, what do you collect now? Like what, what kind of things do you collect modern things? You, you will Some. be for posterity. Well, a lot know? of the modern stuff. Sometimes do you have like Tommy Caldwell's broken cell phone that he supposedly dropped and anything no, like that. No, not yet. <laughs> that stuff's still out there. And right. I, and once we get a building, that'll be easy right. to get. I have, uh, Oh, a rope that Alex gave me when he, uh, rope soloed, um, half dome and mm -hmm. El Cap in mm -hmm. a day. So, and he signed it and stuff, but, not a lot of modern stuff. I have Lynn's shoes from freeing the nose. Oh, cool. um, I've got cams that I loaned to um, these oversized Blanchard cams. Actually, I had two of them. I only have one now because um, one got stolen. But it, uh, they were my personal ones. But I loaned them to the Huber brothers for all the you know the early free routes. Everybody was borrowing them when they were doing Free Rider and Golden Gate and all the El Nino and all that stuff. So right. um, this was before. Um, you had the, you know, uh, black diamond, you know, number fives and sure. sixes. Yeah, those were the custom yeah. ones for that big stuff. Yeah. And Do you so, have the Huber's leather pants? That would be no, a nice No, that'd piece. be good. I yeah. have a Bridwell shirt, though, a Paisley <laughs> oh, you shirt do. that you right. know, Marty Caravan gave us. And I've got actually Leighton just, um, I recently helped um, with uh, Bridwell's uh, memorial in Yosemite or helped mm -hmm. set it up because of my connections with the Park Service. And Anyway, Leighton gave me his drill, you know, power drill Ryobi, but uh, I'm like, well, I'm not, I don't know if this is something I can put on display in the park. <laughs> illegal. <laughs> I have some other Bridwell equipment, right. but uh, he also gave me a knife, one of the last knives that uh, Jim and Leighton were making knives at the end, uh, and they're into samurai knives or swords and stuff. Uh -huh. So they're making their own hmm. knives. So I've, I got one with a little scabbard and stuff. It's pretty, pretty cool. It looks dangerous, but um, modern stuff not so much. To get back to that question, uh -huh. I uh, I know it's still out there, and I'll get it. My problem is storage right now. So, right. Yes. Yeah, so and money. So if we can, and, and we get a building. But one of the more recent things, like uh, oh, yeah, there's a few things that were good scores lately. Well, Mark Powell gave me all his boots last year and his little equipment that he has. Mark Powell was on the first attempt of the nose mm -hmm. until he, he got hurt, but. Um, Anyway, he freed the stove leg, or he's the one that got up the stove legs, freed a lot of it. And uh, so I got his stuff, and then sort of just bizarre thing recently, I was, I, I just had neck surgery and stuff, so I was getting a checkup, and, and it was like this bad day, because I found out my insurance had, had dropped the contract with Stanford. So I just had a quarter million dollar neck surgery, and suddenly I'm not sure I'm insured anymore, right? And I'm like... It, and I went into my I'm selling the museum. In my, <laughs> and so I went into my emails and 
So I'm down at Stanford and this probate lawyer is reaching out to me. He goes, hey, I got this picture. It says on the back, John Salathay and, and Hax Nelson and Lost Arrow Spire. And I, I knew what it was. And he goes, do you want it? Otherwise, I'm going to bring it to the thrift store. And I, and I go, yeah, I want it. Where are you? And he goes, San Jose. And he goes, I go, can I go? I'm only an hour away. I can I, you know, drive down there and get it. And so he goes, yeah, okay. Um, so I drive down and get it. And it's an original Lounsville Adams. I knew it as soon as I heard the description because he's the only one that took pictures other than Dick Houston, um, uh -huh. that famous one where their arms around each other. But it's a picture of them on the Lost Arrow tip, Ansel Adams photo, and it's a 30 by 40 inch <laughs> print. Really? I just got this a couple months ago. So they gave it to me. I just sent a letter, and I suspect that the guy knew what it was but wanted to help me out. It's actually our, our logo, the Yosemite Climbing Association yeah, logo. So I get a call from Ken. He's actually in his car, and he goes, you will not believe what I have in my car. I'm actually, I'm really afraid I might get in an accident. I was more worried home. about cars behind me. I'm driving more in the rear view mirror, making sure nobody's passing, because I had to fold the seats down to get right. it in the car, right? And I got this, I don't know what, it's a priceless picture. Right. And I'm right. just driving, and I'm like, whoa, watch out, don't hit the car. Yeah. in front but i was i'm probably looking in the rear view more than i was out the front window but i think it's i got it home safely it but anyway, show, it was shows so that you're you're now you're known like you're well known to be a like really a depository for these artifacts that yeah. are so critical to yosemite climbing history which is so critical to like global climbing history right uh, so i mean it is global climbing history like it is well the international yeah. i mean everybody comes here it was i've blown hall bags for example, I loaned my hall bag, they trashed the shit out of it. But um, to the first Greek climbers to climb El Cap one time, Steve Roper called me up and was like, hey, can you help them out? I did. I lost my hall bag, came back with, they didn't pat it at all and obviously did a low angle route on the left side somewhere. Mm -hmm. So I had holes like this through it. But I, I mean, but it, it's so cool. And I, I, I've talked about that before in Camp 4. You can walk through there and there's just like this international feel to it. You hear all these different languages, but then you stop at somebody's campfire, even though maybe you only have a few words in common, but you did the same route together. You know, you both did what PO and, and so you can relate. There's that common language through climbing mm -hmm. to where you can communicate and suddenly it's like, Oh, you did PO. Oh, what about, you know, that pitch or whatever. And, and you're, you know, you can see these animated, conversations that and plus it's a way to get mutual respect right away and so to me that's important especially with this political climate that we're in now we're you know just kind of shrinking inwardly to the united states and mm. you know there's just so many other people in the world and and we all belong to this place so i i really like that about camp four mm. and how you know people from all over the world can kind of come together and Appreciate. And live together and appreciate each other and communicate with each other, respect each other. Um, to me, that's that's a really huge thing. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a super important feature of climbing to me. And something that's been hard to convey to my family or people who don't climb, just how great it is to show up somewhere, uh, even in the Middle East. You know, I, I, I climbed in, in uh, Jordan and Wadi Rum and, nice. you know, there's climbers there and they're not great climbers or the one, the guy, the Bedouin we met, but they're, but they, 
they want the connection there. You know, they want to talk to me about climbing because I've just appeared from somewhere that, you know, they respect and they're like, okay, he's a climber. I need to present myself as a climber. And it was just super cool because you, you just wanted to connect with these, these people, you know, and, and well, there, yeah, there's also been a really long history of mentorship with climbing mm -hmm. and with teaching people and sharing of information, which is so unusual in any other sport. You look at surfers, they're not going to, you know, they don't want to talk about their secret ways type of thing. And who knows, maybe climbing is going to get that way as it gets more crowded, but there is so much rock and stuff out there, but it, it it's like, where, what other sport can you, you know, say for basketball, can you go out and meet LeBron James or go out and meet, you know, the big stars of that particular story, uh, of that particular sport? But in climbing, just by being out there, you're likely to run into these people and have interactions with them. And so that, yeah, that, I've I think mentioned that, that too. It's crazy. Yeah, you know? it's a, but that's what's really neat about the sport. Yeah. You know, in, in my opinion. So, I mean, I, for example, you know, I ran into T.M. Herbert on a, when I was 14 years old, you know, mm -hmm. I helped carry a guy down in a litter with him. That's how I met T.M. Herbert. I met Warren Harding at Lover's Leap, picking him up as a hitchhiker. And I was like, oh my God, that guy looks scary. <laughs> my parents told me not to pick up hitchhikers. I really blew it. <laughs> and, 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 oh God, this is why you don't. And, you know, so... And then I was on the other end of it. One time I was hitchhiking in 19, and I got picked up by a woman with a stolen vehicle, and that was one hell of a story. So <laughs> it's like, God. Anyway, it's, it's just funny how the life is. But right. climbing's so cool in that if you get out often enough and do it mm -hmm. often enough, you're going to run into all these people, especially if you hit these climbing areas at the right time of year. Yeah, right? for sure. Yeah. yeah, if you're climbing on El Cap in August, you might not run into Alex or... Tommy or those guys, but uh, anyway, so I, I don't know if there's any other sport or it's pretty, lifestyle it's like that. It's pretty unique, I think, in that way. And we're accepting, and that yeah. gets back to like El Portal or this town I live in or places I like to choose to live at is where mm -hmm. you can respect the fact that somebody's a little different or a little different age or maybe not into climbing, but, you know, I don't... Anyway, yeah, there's ex acceptance. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, sometimes it's the other way around. Right. I get tired of talking climate. Yeah. But, uh, well, yeah, um, I think we all do at some point. You know, it's only so much. No, you can say. this is the enormous cast. We do not get tired of talking. <laughs> okay, about how this works. But um, well, you guys. Uh, last thing about the facelift. So it's coming up. I know you don't want to advertise it, but when is oh. when do you guys hold it? Oh, we're. Uh, it's always more or less the last week in September, twenty right. fifth through. Um, the 30th this year. Cool. We started off with the evening program on Tuesday. Not sure what our evening programs are going to be yet. We're still working on that, but uh, everything else is in place. Um, one thing we do, too, to make it easy is uh, we supply free camping for 450 to 500 people. Allison, yes, <laughs> takes care of all those reservations along with, every year. Along with uh, Linda Jarrett's also helps a lot with that. But uh, I just grimaced because we, we ran out of camping in the first four hours that, that our request window opened this right. year. Well, yeah, I mean, so, it's the... It's we had the, 800 requests or something like that. It's the problem of hours. the ages for Yosemite. Right. You know, it's, yeah, the, it's yeah. camping in there. It, it, it's sure. gotten gradually more 
ridiculous mm -hmm. in the, the last the few years. The fact that you even somehow carved out that many spots is... I've I, been working on it for years. I mean, it would have to have been for years because I know that the reservations yeah. are years. Yeah, out, so well, they come out wild. in May. I get in there yeah. with my checkbook. It costs about eight $9,000, and that's part of the part of the, the of raising right. the money you know it's one of the things many things i also also thanks to our sponsors well, yeah. another thing we give out every year uh, we partner with clean canteen i give out um, about 1800 bottles every mm -hmm. year uh, just like the one i gave you with different artists um design the bottles and it's funny how i got hooked up with that because um one year uh, oh the california coastal commission called me and said hey we love to have you be part of our, our cleanup because they'd heard about the numbers. And so we were the first inland county because everything that goes in the rivers goes to the ocean to be part of the California coastal cleanup. And so they go, oh, here, we got some shirts. You want some of this stuff? And I go, nah, nah. And they go, do you want any, some water for your uh, volunteers? And without thinking, I go, okay. And stupidest thing I ever did. And so all of a sudden this semi-truck pulls up into my skinny little roads and barely gets in there and backs into my driveway, pallet after pallet of bottled water. And I'm like, oh my Plastic God, this is like what we're picking up. I should have never, God, what was I thinking? I was such an idiot, right? So the next year, Nestle contacts me. And by that, at that time, it only cost about 20000 for me to um, do the whole event, right? Yeah. It's all volunteer. And so, anyway, they offered me $20,000, and I go, sure, um, but can you bring a water station? We got really good water, and then we'll, you know, everybody can fill their water bottles up, and you can brand it and everything. And they go, no, we want to pass out bottled water. And I go, no, thanks. And their jaws dropped. They could not believe that I turned down $20,000. And I had no money to put it on. It's, you know, coming right. up, it's like three months away. I'm going, oh, shit. And I, what I'd do is I'd rack it up on my credit cards and just pray that it would break, and break even. That's all I try to do. But, you know, so I'm getting these financial lessons from your father. Right <laughs> but you have. <laughs> and so, so I said no, but then word got around and suddenly all these companies go, what do you need, Ken? And they start giving me money. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. suddenly, you know, it just felt right to me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, but it was the dumbest thing that I ever did. So I, I make a plenty of mistakes, but I try not to make them two years so have, in a row. We have our water bottles. We're also going to move to reusable coffee cups this year, too, because we have a coffee station that we've been having paper right. cups at. So now we're like, oh, paper right. cups, so, right? Yeah. Walk in the and walk. we got yeah. worn wear comes out and repairs clothing, anybody's clothing mm -hmm. for a couple days. And bottle source, and the bottles. North Face is going to come so, out anyway. Leave so. no traces out. And um, so... Yeah, the word's gotten out. Um, I've always been hesitant to advertise too much, so that's probably going to have to change because we'd we like to do some other national parks. Sure. And Subaru's really on board. They just gave me a car for three yeah. months. And so now I'm learning the social media thing. Thank God I got my son here because he's helping with all, that, all the hashtag stuff you right. know, and everything. So anyway, we just... Took so we're looking to grow. We're looking to add structure, right. which is... You know, what I'm hoping to do as right. like a business person, attorney. <laughs> and then maybe we can expand out into some other parks, you know. It's so funny. I, we, we have to wrap up, but it's so funny because I'm just listening to you, Ken. Like the way you're talking about it, it, it there's like this, maybe it's just your personality, but there's a little bewilderment in <laughs> like 
all of this as to how you ended up sitting here in front yeah, of me 15 well, there, years in. There's a lot of bewilderment. Like, but, but the fact is, is that it's such, in, it's such important work. I mean, you should be receiving awards for this. I, I oh, have received, okay. I received sure. the David Brower Award. Oh, okay, fantastic. Because, you know, as, as yeah. sort of accidentally as you've, you've yeah. walked down the path here to where you're at with the 15-year uh, anniversary, you know, it's it's a body of work now that that's really astounding. You know, uh, aside, uh, aside from the piles of garbage, it, the whole body of work is really astounding. So well, thank you. Yeah, I think I, that's the what keeps community me owes you a around. lot. Well, I don't feel like I, I felt like I owed, I felt like it was the other way around. I feel like climbing. I grew up thinking I was going to go to Vietnam. Got into climbing. I thought I was going to be dead at eighteen. Okay. You know, because I wasn't going to shoot anybody. I was just okay. Shoot me. I'm done. And so I, you know, got into climbing and kind of pushed it, did some pretty crazy things. But I feel like climbing kept me out of a lot of trouble. I mean, I could have been a drug smuggler. I could have been any number of things. Who knows, you know, what would happen. But uh, I think we all come to those little pathways in life like, okay, what are we going to do? We're going to hang out with those folks and kind of go that direction or this well, it's good folks. to find and, passion. And climbing, mm-hmm. like I feel like it really saved me, and it gave me direction as a kid, and um, and as an adult. And hopefully, it's the right direction. But I think it is. And uh, so I, I really wanted to give something back to climbing because I felt like it really helped me out. So hence the climb or collecting climbing gear, climbing museum, and then the park. I just Yosemite. I knew at 13 years old I was going to live there. In my first visit it's like boom <laughs> this is home i felt right. comfortable there so well we all have to thank you well yeah thanks <laughs> a lot <laughs> you bet uh, yeah thanks for having me yeah. or, or us all right folks thank you for listening and thanks to Ken and Allison and Ken's son, Guy, was in the room as well, for uh, coming out and sitting down. And, uh, yeah, what a sweet guy. I mean, he's like all the good things about climbing, like wrapped up in one dude. And please, if you have an inkling to do something good like that for your climbing area, get on it. And despite the fact that Ken's worried about too many people showing up, I'm sure he'd appreciate if you participated this year in the facelift it's coming up on the 25th of september 25th to the 30th in the end of the month i'm sure the camping's all gone but maybe you can figure something out or alternatively if you feel like participating you can certainly go to the yosemite climbing association's website yosemiteclimbing.org and donate a little something to the cause i'm sure they'd appreciate that too okay i also want to thank People for showing a lot of support lately for the Enormacast, monetarily, as well as just uh, pep talks and whatnot to keep this thing going. The Dean Fidelman episodes, I think, really struck a chord, and probably a lot of the stuff that Dean said about trying to be creative within the realm of climbing without necessarily, you know, feeding directly from the brands. It's kind of difficult, and, you know, Luke Mihal's doing it to a certain extent. I'm doing it up here at the Enormacast to a certain extent. Of course, we have our sponsors, but this thing is still out of my living room, out of the passion that I have for it. So thanks again for everybody supporting it. If you want to help out even with just a little bit of effort, you can head over to Enormacast.com, click on the Help Out page, and help out there just by doing a few things on the internets. 
to keep the siren going for the Enormacast. So thanks again, everybody. It's been a great summer. And hopefully you guys stayed safe this summer climbing and are looking forward to the fall like I am. And of course, always being vigilant, always paying attention and checking that knot. Now it's gonna be sad. So sad.